Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. High chill apples. They're known for their great flavor, but these apples supposedly require a lot of cold winter temperatures to thrive. Well, guess what? They're finding a new home. Trials in Southern California, in areas that seldom get below freezing, are proving to be a good place for several high chill apple varieties. Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery tells us about some great tasting apples that should now be grown more often in USDA zones 9 and 10. The plant of the week. It's a very popular, widely adaptable shrub with a lavish springtime display of funnel-shaped, one-inch-long, reddish-colored flowers, the Wygela. Warren Roberts of the UC Davis Arboretum will tell us all about it. It's all on episode 105 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. When we talk about chill hours, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about how you can have better fruit production if you know what chill hours are all about. But as I'm very fond of saying, everything you know is wrong. And what we know about chill hours has come under scrutiny. And there are a lot of great studies going on to see if that is necessarily true anymore. Can you grow, for example, a high chill fruit in a low chill area? And what exactly is a chill? What the heck are we talking about? Let's talk to the guy, Tom Spellman, who's conducting experiments in Southern California growing high chill fruit trees. Tom Spellman's with Dave Wilson Nursery. And Tom, talk a little bit about the history of this plot that you have going. Sure, Fred. And one of the things that I am proud to be able to do through Dave Wilson Nursery is some experimental projects in Southern California's low chill areas. And, you know, I've been in this business for a long time and over the past four decades, I've been getting people that have told me I have uh, a golden delicious apple in um, Orange County, or I have a a Waltana apple in Malibu, or, you know, uh, so on and so Arkansas black in, in Costa Mesa. I used to tell these people that, you know, probably what you really have is, is a variety that was mistagged. You have a variety that, that you, you think is, a high chill variety, but it's probably a low chill variety until I started to go around and meet with some of these people and look at what they were doing and what they were growing. And sure enough, I found uh, Arkansas black in Costa Mesa and, and Waltana apple in Malibu and things that, that I couldn't explain. And this went on for the better part of two decades. And when I started working uh, some experimental projects at the South Coast Research and Extension Center in Irvine, California, so low chill Orange County, one of the things that I proposed to them was I would like to put in a block of high chill apple varieties on the on the Irvine Ranch project there and see if I can replicate some of these results that I've actually seen in person. And a couple of the people said, well, you know, that seems like a stretch. And, and uh, I remember one uh, in, in particular uh, who said, well, Tom, what, what happens if you fail? And I said, well, 
if I fail, nobody will ever hear a word about this <laughs> because I'm not going to publicize it. But if, if, it, if it's successful, I think we can change the way people think about growing apples in, in low chill zones. So they allowed me about a half acre plot to put in um, 30 different varieties of, of high chill apple. These are varieties that would range from 500 plus hours to up to about 1,100 hours. And you have to understand on, on the South Coast Research and Extension Center, their average chill over the years has been less than 200 hours. In fact, we had um, several years, this project was put in, in in March of 2013, we've had several years where the chill accumulation was actually negative. So we had, you know, more hours above 70 during that three-month period than we did hours below 45. In all of those years, Fred, from from the, the second year in the ground, from the second break of dormancy, when we had a little bit of spur wood that, that had established itself, we've had fruit on 29 out of, or 28 out of the 30 varieties. So there, there are definitely some that I don't think lend themselves quite as well. And it's not that they didn't produce any fruit, but they didn't produce a quality fruit. But we've had some real standouts in, in that program that have produced what I would consider, again, on low uh, size managed trees, no bigger than about seven feet tall and seven or eight feet wide. We've had very good sized crops of, of, of fruit and it's been tasty, it's colored up well, it, there hasn't been anything that was produced there that I thought was of inferior quality. So um, this project for me was a complete success, even to the point where they had uh, researchers coming out from you know the East Coast for or or the Midwest for other projects and and programs who basically said I've got to see this project. I don't believe it. I don't believe that you can do that you know, on Irvine uh, property in, in Southern California. So I had a lot of um, Apple experts and, and some real enthusiasts, people that understand apples much better than I do, that looked at that project and scratched their heads. They were just totally amazed at, at what we were able to do to the point where they were like, well, what are you doing? Are you are you icing this thing down in the <laughs> wintertime? And I'm like, no, this is this is outdoor Irvine temperatures you know so we're getting anywhere from negative chill hours to uh, 50 or 75 or 100 or you know in a good year maybe 200 or 225 but we've had fruit every single year since the second break of dormancy which i i think was just an amazing project before we go on and we'll come back and pick it up we'll name some of those winners but i want to insert since the name of the show is garden basics an explanation of what chill hours is so that people don't get lost as we uh, get into the weeds here. Absolutely. All right. So, Tom, explain exactly what a chill hour is and why that's so important for fruit trees. Well, you know, there are a lot of ways that, that chill hours are uh, registered. Probably the most common model for, for chill hour registration is accumulation of fall and wintertime uh, chill hours between November 1st and January 31st. And that's a West Coast model. If you're if you're in the Midwest or back East, your your accumulation time is going to go out much longer than that. But on the West Coast, we're looking at 90 days, you know, November, November 1 to about January 31. And it would be accumulation of hours between 
45, some say 50, 50 degrees, 45 degrees, down to right at freezing, down to 32. So very seldom, you know, in Southern California do we get much uh, below 32. So most of the time, those chill hours are, are accumulated between that period of time, and they are registered through um, like a CMOS, uh weather registration station or um, you know, you could uh, just con- contact your local weather service and find out what what the local chill hour accumulation is. They normally keep pretty good records on. If you go to so, Dave, if you go to DaveWilson.com and you start looking at the lists of all the deciduous fruit trees, it usually tells you the recommended number of chill hours for this particular tree. And if you live back east or in the Midwest and you're growing fruit trees, chill isn't that big a concern. You're probably going to get the 1,000 hours or 1,500 hours between November and February or longer uh, for that really great tasting apple. Here in the Sun Belt, uh, it could vary. Like in Southern California, 200 chill hours is not uncommon. Up here in Northern California, it used to be 800 to 1,000. Now it's more like 400 to 800. Every year is a little bit different, but we're seeing those chill hours go down. And then there's the, the negative chill hours, and that's actually more of a chill unit uh, situation where you're taking into consideration how warm it's also getting during the day. Absolutely. So the the um, the, the situation is if you have daytime temps that are registering above 70 degrees which is not uncommon in in throughout california during those uh during that 90-day period then that actually takes away from chill so you could have a a 10 chill hour night and have um you know an eight hours during that next day that are above 70 that are actually going to you know steal eight of your 10 chill hours so that that's why i can i can say that we've had years that were negative chill we still had hours that were below 45 or 50, but we had more hours that were above 70 during that 90-day period than were below that 45 or 50 degree number. So, you know, n- negative is absolutely possible. It's not It's not pretty. We don't like it. Uh, I'm, I'm not big on, on 80 degrees in, uh, in December or January, <laughs> but it's not uncommon. Explain why a fruit tree, a deciduous fruit tree needs that cold period that's that's like a good night's sleep fred you know they they are going to wake up in the spring and they're going to bloom and they're going to set their fruit and they're going to do their work through the spring and early summer when they when they mature that fruit and put on some some structure and then that fruit's harvested later on in the summer and then those trees begin to get tired in the fall you've got that old foliage now you've got daylight hours that are getting shorter as the daylight hours get shorter the trees get tired they start to drop some foliage they go into October, November, early December, and they go completely dormant. And that's when you would consider that that tree is asleep. So, you know, it, it is accumulating those chill hours during that winter time period. It, you know, if you if you allow it to go into uh, a, a good dormancy, then it gets a good night's sleep. Then it it's going to wake up happy. It's going to do its job efficiently and, and have a good season. But if, if the chill hours are are rough if the if the tree doesn't get a good winter sleep then it's not going to be effective when it wakes up and blooms and and needs to do its work in the spring uh, and and there are certainly other ways that you can help to achieve that dormancy you know i mean what wh- there are two things that we have no control over and one 
is the daylight hour sequence. You know, every year, June 21st is going to be the longest day. December 21st or right around there is going to be the shortest day. So that's that's when we're getting supposedly a cooler season. You know, in, in December when we only have eight daylight hours instead of July when we have 13 or 14 sometimes, we want to, we want to allow that tree to get that good night's sleep and, and go dormant. So we have no control over that. That's going to happen the same time every year, like clockwork, no changes. Now, you would think within that same period of time that you would get the coolest weather, but that doesn't always happen. We don't always get, you know, 40s and 50s and, and 60s during those those cool days. We can have warm days, you know, at, at the same period of time. But in general, we're going to get our cooler days during the shortest daylight hours. So we really don't have any control over that either, but it varies. It's, it's, it's not a constant like, like the daylight hours itself. It is something that varies from year to year. Now, what we do have control over is how we irrigate and how we feed. So if you're, if you're feeding too late into the season, if you're feeding in September and October and November and you're using a higher nitrogen fertilizer, that tree is going to have a hard time going dormant to begin with. And now you're, it, that's like going to Starbucks at 11 p.m. and getting your uh, Vente Frappuccino with an extra shot of espresso and expecting to go home and go to sleep. You don't, you, you don't want to sleep. You know, the tree doesn't want to sleep either. So we've got to cut off fertilizing early in the season. We've got to stop fertilizing by about the end of June. Mm. You know, you want to feed early, starting January, February, feed in, again in April, feed again in June, and then be done with it. So it's like a six months on and six months off. And, and the later you feed in the summer, the more difficult time you're going to have in achieving that, that dormancy or that good winter sleep for that tree. Same with irrigation. You want to start to lighten up a little bit as we get into that late summer. And I know it's still hot. It still can be bloody hot in, in August and September and October. But that's the time when you want to start to hold back a little bit to allow those terminal buds on that tree to, to, to set and, and start into uh, a dormant season. It's not going to go dormant yet, but you don't want that vigorous flush of growth into October and November. One of the reasons that high chill apple varieties are so popular is they just taste so dang good what are the the high chill apples that you tested down there in southern california that are just so dang good and these are varieties that i can you know highly recommend in southern california coastal and inland valleys where they get nowhere near the chill that would be needed so the first one was an old favorite of mine called arkansas black and arkansas black is a very, very um, firm textured apple. I mean, to the point where some people have a hard time biting into an Arkansas black. You might have to slice it, but it, it's very firm texture. It's a very um, highly colored, you know, almost a pure white variety inside. The exterior color is dark, dark, dark red, almost to the point where it almost looks like it's a black apple. You know, this is one of those varieties that is multi-purpose use. You can use it in cooking. You can use it in, in ciders. You can use it for, uh, you know, baking, for pies. You can also just eat it fresh off the tree. So it, it's a great late season variety. And, and one of the things that all of these higher chill varieties had in common is they were almost all mid-late season to late season. So mm. they in, in, in the project there in Irvine, these varieties were ripening up on the tree as early as 
the end of August or, you know, or, or early September, but holding on the tree until well into winter and into the point where we, we were having to strip the remaining apples off in mid-January when we were doing our winter pruning. <laughs> so, you know, we had apples really for four months that, that were hanging on the trees and just getting better and better and better as, as time went on. So Arkansas Black is, is one that I would highly, highly recommend. Another one that I really liked was Cox Orange Pippin. And, you know, Pippins are, are hard, hard to find in the market anymore. It's very seldom that you'll go in and find anything except for commodity varieties. So being able to grow a delicious piece of fruit like Cox Orange Pippin in an area that where people thought they could never do it before, that's that's huge. It's a nice variety, again, starting up in late September and holding right up until January on, on the tree and just getting better and better as time went on. And that's a tree, a, a variety that does well throughout uh, most of the United States. I think like USDA zones four through eight. <laughs> now all yep. of a sudden we're talking zone nine. We're talking zone nine and even, you know, uh, you could almost cross some of that area over into maybe what they would call a zone 10. Another one that, you know, I've never been a fan of when you buy it in the market. And it's, and it's a commodity variety. It's a commodity that you'll find in the market throughout most of the year. And that was Golden Delicious. Golden Delicious, oftentimes when you buy it in the market, it almost tastes like the box that it was shipped and stored in. <laughs> uh, it has kind of a cardboard, mealy texture to it. And I, I, I've just never been impressed with the variety. But it was one that I that I had previously seen in Southern California. And was recommended by a couple of friends of mine, and I thought, "Hey, I, I can't, I can't judge fruit by what you can oftentimes buy in the market because it's it's cold stored for so long because they want to display it, you know, all the time. They want to have that same three by three piece of countertop, you know, with golden delicious apples and red delicious right next to it, and uh, Brayburn or Gala or Fuji or something else right next to that. So I decided to put it in and I thought I'm not I'm not going to judge it by what you buy in the market. I'm going to let it let it do its thing and see what it does. And you know, again, tree holding time probably 3 months. Did really well. Was was able to pick by mid-September and holding until until January. So good quality fruit, nice color, bright bright golden color and um very crispy, crunchy texture, you know, much, much different than anything that you would have ever purchased uh, in, in the market. I would like to offer a warning to people. Please do not judge the quality of fruit by what you are tasting from purchases at the grocery store. If you can get it at a farmer's market, even better, grow it in your backyard. You will never go back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think a couple other standouts, one of them, and this is probably my second favorite variety out of this whole collection of, of 30, is it's an old-fashioned variety called Hudson's Golden Gem. And I put it into my yard back in the 1980s, and it's produced reliable fruit for me ever since. The fruit was, I wouldn't say it was exceptionally large. I would say it was medium to medium small in size, but profuse uh, bearing. I mean, it just loaded up with fruit. The Hudson's Golden Gem Apple, and in its uh, native Oregon, I would think uh, they were probably getting a thousand chill hours up there for that, and yet you're finding it growing in an area that gets about two hundred or less hours. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think it was rated at at eight or nine hundred, you know, in in our variety description, and and just did exceptionally well. And you know, there are others. Uh, King David did great. Waltana did great. And Waltana's a 
an old Albert Eder variety from uh, up in Northern California there that was hybridized probably back in the 19-teens or 20s. And uh, Albert Eder came up with some wonderful apple varieties up, up in the Sonoma area there and, and some of them that we, we still see today. But I think Waltana is one big, large fruit, beautiful greenish yellow color and and again you could use it for baking or you could use it just for eating fresh it almost had a kind of a cider like flavor just to take a bite out of a fresh piece of fruit off the tree and i i really find that appealing i'm i'm so into varieties that have individual flavor characteristics i, I don't want them to taste like the next variety and the next variety and the next variety and so often that's what we buy in in the grocery store where some of these old-fashioned selection had all kinds of different flavor attributes that we just don't find. What's interesting, too, about the Hudson Golden Gem apple, it is reportedly resistant to scab, mildew, and fire blight. Did you find that growing any of these varieties in a low-chill area changed uh, former resistances to some of these pest and disease issues? No, I don't think so, Fred. I I think um, I, I was very lucky to be on a piece of property that, wasn't completely developed uh, around it at the time so there was really there was really almost no inoculum for fire blight in the area i had very very little issue with fire blight over the years and i i tried to run this program looking at 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 a backyard grower's perspective i didn't want to come in and and spray i i didn't even do a dormant spray on this program so the you know the only thing that um we ever did was uh, keep the trees pruned, keep the trees whitewashed to protect them against sunburn. And when we did our our winter pruning, we would use um, a hose and a high pressure nozzle and just keep the trees blasted out. If there was any scale or any mealy bug or any uh, woolly aphid or something, we just kind of wash it off the off the structure. But I had almost no insect or disease problem or presence uh, through the through the whole term of that project. So. Wow, that's amazing. I, I think I think if you can, you know, if you can grow under conditions like that where you can keep things controlled, um, you know, a little bit of high pressure water makes a huge difference in in how trees perform just to keep those trees clean and keep those scale and mealy bugs and things, you know, washed out of those uh, tight crotches. And, and you know, you, you definitely uh, can control 90 percent of your creepy crawly insect issues just by keeping those trees clean. You can find more of Tom's picks at DaveWilson.com. Just click on the Home Garden tab at the top of the page and then click on Fruit Variety Recommendations and you can find Tom's picks uh, that are winners for the Low Chill Southwest and a lot more information about how to grow fruit trees and and, and much, much more. It's a very informative website, DaveWilson.com. Tom Spellman, congratulations, and I uh, can't wait to taste some of those high-chill fruits. Thank you, Fred. Always a pleasure. I, I probably enjoyed this project more than any other project I've, I've done there, just because so many people told me, you're going to fail with it. <laughs> and and I, I just knew that I wasn't. I just knew that it was going to it was going to work, and, and I think I opened a lot of people's eyes. You've heard me talk about Smart Pots, the award-winning fabric planter here on the Garden Basics podcast. They're durable and reusable. I've been using mine for five years now, and once again, they're being pressed into service in my yard. Yeah, I have this problem. 
I, I grow too many tomatoes for the amount of allotted sunny space I have for them. So those extra tomato plants go into the smart pots. I place them in scattered areas around the yard where I know they'll get enough sun, which is a premium in my yard. And even five years later, I can pick up those smart pots, plant and all, and move them around without fear of the smart pot tearing or ripping. Smart Pot's breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants, and Smart Pots come in a wide variety of sizes and colors. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts where you can buy Smart Pots at Amazon. Okay, now I understand maybe you want to see the Smart Pots before you buy them. That's not a problem. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. Are you thinking of growing fruit trees? Well, you probably have a million questions, like which fruit trees will grow where I live? What are the tastiest fruits? How do I care for these trees? The answers are nearby, they're just a click away, with the informative fruit tube video series at DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest grower of fruit trees for the backyard garden. They've got planting tips, taste test results, links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. We like to talk with Warren Roberts. He is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. And there is one that is very common across the United States. You can grow it in USDA zones 1 through 10. And it is a deciduous shrub. And I'm not going to pronounce it. Warren will. Hi, Warren. Oh, hi, Fred. <laughs> well, we're talking about the Weigela, W-E-I-G-E-L-A. That's the typical pronunciation, I guess. Uh, I guess in Germany it would be Vigela, but Weigela is what we call it. But I've heard people pronounce it in a number of ways. One of the, the most amusing one is that the grandma, the grandmother of one of my friends calls it Wiglia. Yeah, yeah, that's actually how I, I learned it, too. It's the Wiglia. The Wiglia. Oh, good. I'm glad to know more people know it as that. Well, it's, it's a deciduous shrub. It is a very faithful and easy plant to grow. They're, they are deciduous, though, so in the winter they have no leaves. But uh, beautiful, rather small uh, leaves, somewhat pleated. The flowers, I was trying to think of the word to describe them. They're kind of bell-shaped and kind of tubular all at the same time, produced in clusters and often in great abundance. There are about, oh, let's see, about 10 species of Wygela in uh, East Asia. That's where the plant is from, with so many of our beautiful shrubs and trees are native to China. Uh, the main species grown is called Wygela florida. Uh, florida. The name Florida refers, of course, to the state, but basically I think in Latin it means flowery mm. or full of flowers. It is, well, there are some dwarf forms. There are about a hundred different cultivars, and the colors range from white uh, to very dark red, also in pink and uh, kind of apricot colored too. It's often the flowers have more than one color on them. Easy to grow, uh, probably best in full sun, although in uh, areas, the hotter areas of the U.S., a little afternoon sun uh, shade, sorry, a little afternoon shade would be a good idea. 
the it's the main thing about it i think is its dependability it's just easy to grow uh, and when it's in bloom it is re- really outstanding of course it <laughs> it blooms in the spring and early summer when a lot of other things are in bloom but it's it's a really good part player and i would uh, recommend it for almost any garden it, it, it's not weedy you don't have to worry about that uh, looks good uh, i don't think it has a fragrance uh, but with beautiful flowers like that you can't have everything it blooms in the spring i guess uh, depending on the uh, species you get it could range in height anywhere from two or three feet up to uh, 10 feet tall that's uh, that sounds right it's uh, we talked about the colquitsia the beauty bush recently and they they look similar but the Wajil is a, small, a smaller shrub, typically. Can take uh, full sun or light shade, uh, regular watering. And if you're looking for a showy plant in the spring, you might want to consider, I'll call it the Wigla, but you'll call it what? Wajila. Thank you. All right. The Wajila. <laughs> All right. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. Visit the Arboretum online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu, and you can peruse their wonderful collection of plants that they have there. Warren, thank you again for the plant of the week. Thank you, Fred, for the opportunity. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.